Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God had made heaven and the, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. It was then that the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it, div it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalia, <laughs> where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and Ankh stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Father, I ask that you would bring us now to your table where you have prepared a banquet and a feast for us. Your word says that your saints come and they are never going away hungry. Fill us, I pray. And quench us with your living water that we may come here to your house and drink abundantly and be refreshed and strengthened. So, Father, I pray for your Holy Spirit to draw us to your Son where we can become fulfilled and satisfied. And I pray, too, that you help us to find our place in your story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this is our second section of the second part of the series called History. And we're looking at God's story that he's written throughout the whole Bible. And we're trying to do this in 31 parts. So we've broken the Bible down to 31 parts where we see the basic flow of the Bible story. Because I fear that many of us don't quite see the full concept of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation that the whole thing is telling a big grand story. And for us in life, if we don't understand this story that defines our life, mission, and existence then we're not going to find meaning in our life. So understanding this story is key to understanding the meaning of my life and how to fit my decisions and my context into the grand scheme of things. If I don't understand this story, then what's going to happen is I'm going to fall into the story that exists in Western American culture. Because every culture has a story by which the people interpret their past, make the decisions for the present, and direct their future. And for America, 
Our story is called The American Dream, and it has the two twin themes of individualism and materialism. And so, if you're part of that story, you're going to begin to interpret everything you do with me at the center and stuff to make me happy. But God's story is all about his glory, and it's all about us participating and making God more glorious. And we're looking at our place in that. So, in Genesis 1 last week, what we did was we looked at the creation of the world. And what we saw was we had a king, an all-powerful king, who created creation, which became his kingdom. And he put inside the kingdom men and women. And these little men and women were to be his underkings. So the king made a kingdom, and he gave the kingdom to his little underkings to rule it, and to control it, and to keep it, and protect it. And we saw in chapter 1, verse 28, verses 26 through 28, that God made us in his image, and that that image has three meanings for us. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, first, it's a royal meaning. And that is that we are to have dominion or control and rule, power, by ruling over his creation. So to be his images is that he has sent us as his little under kings to rule his creation. So we are kingly extensions of him. That's a big responsibility. Of course, we know that Adam fails miserably in this regard. The second meaning is that image of God has a relational meaning. And to be made in his image means that there's some sort of a similarity by which we can fellowship and have relationship. And it's not just with God, but that relationship extends to others. So there's something unique about being human, and that is the fellowship and relationship basis. And then the third meaning is that it has a missional meaning. And that is that we are to subdue the earth by filling it with other image-bearing people. So we're to multiply and take over the world with people who bear God's image. So that's, and of course we looked at how the church is carrying on that mission today to extend throughout the world people who bear God's image, little Christians to subdue the whole earth. Now, I've been reading lately um, in the news about certain Muslim groups that are just absolutely torturing and obliterating Christian churches in other countries, specifically Nigeria. The Muslims have basically said that Christians are not going to be in this country anymore. So what they've been doing since New Year's is they've been going to churches and basically shooting everybody up and bombing churches and lighting them on fire. And hundreds of Christians have died since New Year's. And basically what their goal is, Nigeria is going to become a Muslim country. So in order to make that happen, drive all the infidels, the Christians, out so it becomes a Muslim country. Now, for Christians, when we talk about subduing the earth, we don't mean take up arms, take up swords, take up violence, and drive the Muslims out of the earth. By no means. Jesus came on the scene and said, love your enemy. And that's how we subdue, that's how we conquer and build God's kingdom, is through the total opposite of what what Islam's doing. We're to win our enemies through love. It's a conversion, not a murder. And so that's what we saw in Genesis. Our role is to be God's image bearers, ruling and extending his kingdom across the entire globe. So in short, We fulfill God's commission to exercise dominion when we subdue the earth by filling it with God's image bearers. And now in chapter 2, 
It seeks to show us the means through which we accomplish this subduing the earth. Namely, we're to make the garden grow. The Garden of Eden is to grow. And God put us there to make that happen. So, the best way to understand this is to see the garden as a temple where God chose to dwell with mankind. He's got all of creation, but then there's one spot in the east, it says, that God made a garden. And he placed the man in the garden, it says, to work it and to keep it. And the best way that we're going to understand this text is to understand this garden was the very first temple on the planet Earth. So, we said that creation is his kingdom, then what that makes the garden is his throne room. This is, we're getting to the very center of God's handiwork as we come to the Garden of Eden. Now, what did it look like? What was it like to be there? In our passage, we see three terms for the garden. You see Eden, then you see the garden, and then you see everything else. We'll call it the outer lands, okay? Is there a difference between Eden and the garden? Yes. If you look at verse 10, it'll become quite apparent where it says a river flowed out of Eden to water the what? The garden. So there's a river moving from Eden to the garden. So we usually call it the garden of Eden and think, oh, it's just one big happy like flower pot place. (laughs) But that's not the case. There's a place called Eden and that's the source of the waters and the waters are flowing from Eden to the garden and the garden's being watered and all happy and then later in the verses it says that that river splits off into four parts and goes into the outer lands so we have those three parts Eden, garden, outer lands now Eden means delight and the idea is that it's a very, very great place It refers to a well-watered place, luxuriant. Just think of green, 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 greatest jungle you can ever think of. A very well-watered place. And of course it should be because the, the river is coming out of Eden to the garden. The garden refers to, quote, an enclosed area with trees. That's its definition. So it's this enclosed area with trees. Don't think when you think of garden, um, don't think of like vegetable garden. Think epic, like national forest kind of garden, okay? And it's an enclosed area. So what that means is that there is existence outside of the garden. So the whole world wasn't this garden. There was a certain location. And then the third part is the ends of the earth is what I'm going to call it, the outer lands. And what in the world were those? Uh, Perhaps it was um, an uninhabited wasteland, a chaotic place. A place with no life. Maybe even it resembled what the earth became after the fall of man. The curse when Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. See, obviously there's outer lands because they're driven out of the garden. Maybe that's what was already there. It was the curse conditions. Um, so whatever it is, is it's not a good place. And God wants man to cultivate that place into a garden. He wants the garden to expand. Now, to continue painting the picture for you guys, you have Eden, river flowing to garden, and then from there, four rivers going to the outer lands. Ezekiel 28, when you guys get a free moment at home or something, I encourage you guys to read that chapter. It's a little bit of an insight to the Garden of Eden. In Ezekiel 28, it portrays 
the Garden of Eden as a mountain. This big old mountain. And so the way that I see it making sense is that the garden was the mountain. So it's just like exploding with trees and life and paradise. And at the very top of the mountain was Eden from which the river came. And so the river came and broke off into four streams down each side of the mountain and watered the garden. And those four streams went to the four corners of the earth. So what you have here is this life-giving river coming from the top of the mountain down to the rest of the world. Eden is literally the center of the world. This elevated majestic mountain and God dwelt there. So, that's what it looked like in the best of my guess, putting the passages of the Bible together. Can you just imagine like this lush, beautiful place and like cascading off the side of the mountain or just rivers? It's just God, like glorious, glorious sight it must have been. So after he makes this, it says that he puts man in this place, in this garden. And look what it says in verse 15 he's supposed to do. Lord God took the man put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. What does that mean? Take care of it. Take care of it. But let me go, let me, I'm going to take you guys a little further here. Work and keep are two words that when used together refer to the Levitical priesthood's work inside the temple. And that's the only thing those two words together ever refer to. So what do we have here? The author is showing us that, that Adam is doing work that the priests did in the temple. So the audience who's reading this would read and go, oh my gosh, there's Adam as the first priest. Let me show you in Numbers 3 verse 7. This is what it says about the priests. They shall keep, same word, guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tabernacle as they minister that's our word in Genesis work so as they work at the tabernacle they shall keep all of the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel so there you have those two terms referring to the priests numbers 8 verse 25 and from the age of 50 they shall withdraw from the duty of the service of the work no more. They shall minister to the brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, and they shall do no service. Thus shall you do to the Levites in assigning their duties. So, Adam here is a priest doing the same things. He's keeping and he's working. Um, further to show that Adam's a priest here, is that image of God that he was created in should be understood as he's a representative of God. And that's what priests are. Priests represent God to the people and represent the people to God. And so here's Adam in the image of God representing him to creation. So what we have here now is we saw in chapter 1, Adam was a little under king given authority. Now in chapter 2, we're expanding on that idea and we're seeing that that includes him being a priest inside of a temple. Now, am I just guessing here that the garden is supposed to be a temple? No. 
I'll show you guys 10 reasons why it's a temple from our text. We'll blaze through these and you'll see why it's important that we have to establish this as a temple. All right, there's 10 reasons that the Garden of Eden was meant to be a temple where God dwelt and man worked as his priest. Number one, God's unique presence in the temple. In chapter 3, verse 8, we see that God walked with man. Walked with man. That is a phrase, walked, that describes what God did in the tabernacle. In Leviticus 26.12 and Deuteronomy 23.14, it says that God walks amongst his people in the tabernacle. So here's God in the garden walking amongst the people. So yes, God's special presence here shows that this is a temple. It's where he chose to dwell with man, where heaven and earth met, right here on the top of this mountain. Number two, the garden had a priest. I just showed that to you. Adam is a priest. So if there's a priest around, there must be a temple around. Number three, the garden had guarding cherubim. We'll see this next time, but you guys recall when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, what guarded the tree of life? Yeah, a cherubim is another word for that, angel of the sword. Now, when you flash forward to the tabernacle and the temple, guess what you have embroidered on the veil that guards man from God's presence? On the veil you have embroidered cherubim and angels. And on the Ark of the Covenant itself were cherubim carved onto the Ark. And along the walls of the temple, there were cherubim carved into the walls. So, the cherubim guards this temple. The cherubim were guarding the real temple. Number four, the tree of life is here, and the tree of life was in the temple. Where was the tree of life in the temple? It was called the lampstand. The lampstand was meant to be figured as a tree. It had one stem and six branches coming off of it, just like a tree. And on those branches, they carved into the gold fruit and cherry blossoms so that it looked like a tree. And that's what it was supposed to depict. It was supposed to be the link between the garden and the temple to show, oh, this, this temple we created is like the garden of old. And of course, Solomon, um, this is number five, Solomon's temple was loaded with garden engravings. You read 1 Kings 6 and 7, it says that Solomon carved on trees and plants and all kinds of wildlife all over the decoration of the, of the temple. Why? Because it was supposed to look like a garden. So, number six, water flowed from Eden. What's the big deal with that? There was no water in the temple. Well, actually, there was the bronze basin where they washed their hands. But even more convincing is that there is an end-time temple that the Bible tells us about in Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 22. These end-time temples both have the same central thing in them. And that is that a river flows from the temple out to the rest of the world. And here in Eden, we have a river flowing out to the rest of the world. What did, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself there. So the water shows a connection between the end time temple and this temple. Number seven, the garden had precious stones. We saw that in verse 12 where it talked about gold and bdellium and onks. I don't even know how you pronounce that. It doesn't even like work with our English. Onyx. Onyx, um, onyx is a stone. Onyx. I love it when students are smarter than me. I love that. <laughs> there was precious stones. Well, what was the temple made of? Gold. Overlaid everywhere. 
The utensils were pure gold. And what was on the breastplate of the high priest? An onyx stone was one of them. And many other precious stones. Stop making fun of me for that <laughs> word. So the precious stones are connection. Number eight. Eden was on a mountain. I showed you that from Ezekiel 28. Guess what Jerusalem's temple was always referred to as? The Mount of the Lord. Or also another specific word is Mount Zion. Jerusalem's temple is always portrayed as being on a mountain. Number nine. The garden was in the east. We saw that in verse eight. Well, every time you entered the temple, you always entered in on the east side. And the temple faced east. So there's another connection. And then finally, number ten. The garden like the temple, had three zones of holiness. You guys might recall that in the temple and the tabernacle, you had the outer courts where everybody could come in. Then you had the holy place, which was right inside the actual temple building. And then inside the temple building was the third zone behind the great big veil called the Holy of Holies, where God's, it was referred to as God's throne on the earth. So you had those three sections. Outer courts, holy place, holy of holies. Garden of Eden is the same thing. You have the outer lands, they're the outer courts. Then you start to come to the mountain, to the garden, you're in the holy place. And then you get to the very top, to Eden, you're in the holy of holies, where God is sitting as king over his kingdom. So, now this is what I want to know. Chapter 1 portrays creation as a kingdom. But chapter 2 starts to portray the garden as a temple. So which is it? And which were we supposed to be put in? What are we, are we, are we under kings like chapter 1? Are we priests like chapter 2? The story seems to kind of contradict at this point. No, not at all. God created his creation. <laughs> he created his kingdom and he put us in there to rule it. And chapter 2 now focuses in on the meaning of being in the image of God. And that's his under kings. And it says, okay, let's zoom in and see that actually what this kingdom is, is a temple. And the man, the under kings, are to rule as a priest rules in a temple. So he's starting to define for us what our specific role is in God's story. What we have is a very unique situation. For us, it's hard to grasp this world being both God's kingdom and temple because usually what you have inside of a kingdom is a little temple. The king rules the kingdom and then in the little temple there's a little God. But our situation is unique because our king is our God. So it's not like he has a throne and then there's a temple for somebody else. It's both for him. And the king rules the kingdom. And if that king that rules the kingdom is God, then that kingdom has to be a temple. Because a temple is where God chooses to dwell with man. So really what we have is kingdom and temple are synonymous terms. And we're beginning to learn further the point here. So I say it has to be both because the goal of God's kingdom is to extend his ruling presence to the ends of the earth. That's why he made a kingdom at creation. That's why he made under kings. He wanted to extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth, his ruling presence. Little men, little women, 
Go, bear my image to the ends of the earth and expand this kingdom into a glorious temple where I dwell across the whole land, that the land is filled with my glory just as the sea is filled with water. That's the idea. God's glory over the earth just like water in the sea, just everywhere, covering everything. So that is the mission he gave to man was go and spread my kingdom or in this context of the garden, go and spread my temple. Let my presence overwhelm this earth. Further, temples were, views, um, temples were viewed as the throne of the God that lived there. Where did that God rule? His? You know how paganism had a God over every sort of area of nature, like the God of fertility? Well, where did that God rule fertility from? From his temple. Do you guys remember that um, we, we looked at how all the creation stories of the nations around Israel talked about a temple being built at the end of creation? We looked at Babylon's story called the Enuma Elish. And Marduk was a little baby god from his parent gods. And they started this big, cosmic, chaotic war, and Marduk stepped up and created order out of the chaos. He began to create things and made everything livable, um, hospitable, hospitable? um, habitual, habitable, there we go, made it livable, that's a better word. And at the very end of the story, Marduk builds a temple. And let me read to you from the Enuma Elish what it says. It says here, Marduk speaking, After he defeats the evil monster, Tiamat, it says, We will make a shrine, temple, which is to be called by name, Chamber that shall be our stopping place. We shall find rest therein. We shall lay out the shrine, the temple, and let us set it up its emplacement. Um, When we come there, we shall find rest in the temple. What happened on the seventh day of creation? So that God rested. Rest doesn't mean he was tired. Rest means that he came and inhabited his temple, his dwelling place. Because it was in a temple that a God found rest. And what we learn from the Numa Elish is exactly that. Marduk had conquered his enemy, so he built a temple. And he found rest in it. What the rest means is that the God is now sovereign. His enemies are defeated. And that's what kings did. If you defeat a land or an enemy, you would go build a temple. It would show that there's now rest over the land and the God can now come and reign because the chaotic enemy is gone. Look at Israel. When did they build their temple? After David had conquered all the enemies. There was peace in Israel. And then his son Solomon built a temple So the temple as a resting place shows that the God now has complete sovereignty. And so that God builds his temple in Eden. What does this mean? God wins. He's now resting. So the temple becomes the God's throne because he inhabits it once the enemy is conquered. And now the God is free to reign. That's what we have going on there. Now we get to the important part of our whole thing. I've showed you guys and tried to defend you guys the fact that the garden is a temple. What is the point of this? One verse twenty-eight was we looked at last week was God's commission to us, and it says, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, 
subdue it and have dominion over everything. I summarized the last part. So creation is not just God's kingdom. It's also his temple. It's where he dwells with man. And as the image of God, man is not just the under king, but he's the priest. This is what we've been seeing. So this means that man's commission in 128 to subdue the earth could be translated as take my temple and make it big. Make it spread. Fill the earth with it. Make more little priests and grow it. So the commission to man, when God puts Adam in the garden, is to say, Adam, here it is. Work it. Keep it. I want you to subdue the earth. Multiply. Fill it. Have dominion. Make this garden on this mountain grow, following all the streams of river, the rivers of life. Follow those and make the garden grow till it completely encompasses the entire globe. So that then the entire world is God's. The entire world is his temple where man dwells with him always. There's no outer lands of chaotic wilderness that's uninhabitable. It's all garden. And so man is put there and he's supposed to... It's interesting that the family... um, We didn't read it, but Eve was made right after this. And so marriage is established. It's interesting to see that that's the point of family. The point of family is to produce little many priests so that then those priests extend. See how the garden is getting bigger now. And then those priests have priests and the garden is getting bigger and it's getting bigger. And you're pushing the borders of the garden more and more out so that it encompasses the whole earth. That was the mission for Adam. So God wanted, he put him in his temple, the garden, so that the borders would expand to the ends of the earth, so that his kingdom may cover the entire globe. That is our role in God's story. That's why he made man and woman. Be priests in his temple, and to let his presence spread. (laughs) Part of this is exactly what God did in creation. Chapter 1, what do you do to the chaos in verse 2? There was that chaos that started, right? We opened the scene and there was something not right about the earth. God steps in and he conquers it and he makes creation. And now he, he, secondly, he then rules over the chaos by establishing with his word and with naming, he establishes creation over it and he keeps everything in place because he's in sovereign control. And then third, he fills the earth with life. Birds, fish, plants, trees, animals, man, life. He wins. And man is supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to conquer the chaos. He wants us to make the garden grow, to subdue it, to get rid of it. God ruled over the chaos with creation. He wants us to rule over his garden and to cultivate it and to make life and to make it grow. And then he filled the earth with life and that's what he wants us to do too. Make many little priests (laughs) that keep on popping out, that keep on multiplying so that we can, as the priests expand... The temple expands. So gradually, little by little, the garden is to grow. As Hunter has, Hunter's a priest, he has his little realm that he's working, cultivating, keeping, and then he gets a wife, and that realm expands, and then they have kids, and it expands even more. And that's why family is so important. It's because when we start to sever the family relationship, then we start to split the temple apart. And no longer is Hunter working with another, expanding the garden. Hunter's by himself. 
the family context where priests are developed. Image bears a God and it grows. So how is Adam to expand this temple? What did God give him to do it with? That's what verse 15 is all about. It says he put him in the garden to do two things. Work it and keep it. So Adam was first to work the garden by cultivating creation's full potential. Man was to gradually cultivate the garden's borders until it subdued the uninhabitable wilderness. So there's Adam. He's supposed to make sure the trees are growing, that everything's well taken care of, and so that it can keep growing. He's starting to plant more seeds and make it grow and grow. In other words, Adam was supposed to work. What it says. Put him there to work. Now, let me, let me help you guys here, okay? This is a good life lesson to learn. Work is not a curse. Work is not a curse. You are built to work and find satisfaction in work. What is a curse is work that produces no fruit. That's toilsome work. That's the work that does nothing. That's the work we experience often. That's the curse. Work that produces nothing. But that man was to work was from the very beginning. Because God made us to find fulfillment in the accomplishment of our hands. Yeah, I'm talking to a generation that thinks that work is a curse and all we want to do is be entertained. I'm talking to a generation that is pervasively bored. I can tell you how many kids I talk to and it's like, they just don't know what to do. I'm bored. I have a day of no school. What do I do? What would I I'd kill for that day? But what was the difference? We have a generation that doesn't see the blessing of working. If you want a life of meaning and you don't want to be bored, step up and do something. As Adam was to do, he was to cultivate creation. So Christian, this is what we do. God gave you a tool and he wants you to cultivate with that tool. All right, Stephen has his passion to become a NASCAR racer. So when Stephen's bored, it's because he's not pursuing that passion. Stephen needs to cultivate that passion. Um, some of you have a gift for writing. Cultivate your gift and begin to grow the garden God put you in. Let it grow. What we call this, when we use our gifts and begin to cultivate them, we call the result culture. Example, music, that's the result of cultivating creation. Music is culture. Movies is culture. The result of cultivating creation. You can go down the list. You've got architecture. You've got literature. You've got drama. You've got technology. Farming. Art. Family life. That is the all-encompassing theme of that is culture. And where culture comes from is when human beings cultivate creation. Where did photography come from? Some genius figured out that if I cultivate light, I can make pictures. Where did architecture come from? Another genius thought, if I cultivate creation and gravity in a certain way, I can make things stand up. And then another genius came and made them look beautiful. It's called art. <laughs> and see, everything that defines our culture is because people cultivated creation. And this cultivating process was designed to promote our mission as priests to expand the garden. 
So Adam was supposed to experience all of the potential of creation. Find out, my, look what this parrot can do. Look what these trees can do. I wonder how many more I can grow or how far it can go. You just experiment with creation and love it and work it and cultivate it and it starts to expand. That was his goal. By the way, cultivating creation must have been an amazing task then. It is not far-fetched to say that walking trees and talking animals like you find in the Chronicles of Narnia, it is not a far-fetched to say that that's not true. It's not just fairy tale. I mean, I don't know. But what we have right now is creation that's under a curse. And Romans 8 says that creation longs for the day when we're redeemed by God when he comes back because creation's curse will be released. And do you even know what creation, what potential is there when the curse is released? It would not shock me if you can talk to animals at that point. I mean, cultivating creation, there's lots of potential there. And what man can do when Jesus returns, it's going to be amazing, I think. By the way, before the curse, the serpent did talk. So maybe C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien were onto something with all their fantasies. Maybe. Second thing Adam was to do. Oh, wait, wait, let me, before I say that. So they're supposed to cultivate creation, make culture. And that culture is supposed to promote their mission to expand the temple across the world. But after the fall, because obviously Adam messed this up, right? After the fall, this work of cultivating creation has introduced a danger to it. We were supposed to have dominion over creation, but now creation often has dominion over us. We were supposed to be cultivating culture. Now culture is cultivating us. Let me put it very, like, like in real life words here. Horticulture, the study of plants, we were supposed to be the masters of that. But how many people are mastered by the weed plant? We were supposed to be masters of farming and vineyards. But how many people are, the ma- are mastered by the vineyard and alcohol? We're supposed to be the masters of photography and light, but how many people have become mastered by light as they're sucked into and addicted to pornography? We've ruined movies with our being seduced by creation. Rather than controlling and making good, wholesome movies, we're now making chaos and corruptness because culture controls us now. So that's part of the fall. And that's where I can say, don't think that all oh, culture is good. Literature is beautiful when it's cultivating God's creation to help promote his temple. But when it begins to dominate us, when our literature becomes sensual, when it's all about finding unrealistic love and graphic love scenes in it and, and exposing you to all the filth of the world, you're no longer using culture to expand the kingdom you're being diminished by culture. All right, second, Adam was to keep the garden, it says. And what that means is to protect the garden. He was to protect it from anything unholy and unclean. If this garden is a temple, this becomes very realistic, right? You guys can remember the temple and all the tabernacle scenes in the Old Testament. What happened if Joe Schmo walked into the temple without his sin forgiven? He was dead. What happened if they brought something that didn't belong into the temple into it? They died. 
The temple was God's stomping grounds. It was his throne room. It was his control. He controlled the universe from there. And, and if you brought something in that didn't belong, something that was unholy, zap, you're dead. It didn't belong here with me. This is my dwelling place, God says. Leviticus 10, classic example. Nadab and Abihu, they bring in, it says, quote, strange fire, whatever that is. They bring it in, and they weren't supposed to. So they bring in, this first day the tabernacle set up. Everyone's celebrating, yay, God's going to dwell in our midst, worship him. And Nadab and Abihu come with strange fire, and all of a sudden, big fire comes down from heaven and levels them. And everybody went from worship to worry, real quick. And what did God say? In result of that, he said in verse 3 of Leviticus 10, just put it bluntly, Listen, Moses, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, protected. My name will be kept holy. And before the people, I will be glorified. Man does not control my temple. They don't get to say what comes in. I control it. I've given it to them to protect it so that nothing bad wanders in. Now, Brandon, in the garden, was that what did Adam have to protect it from? himself, for one. But more importantly, you'll see this next time, from the serpent. No evil presence was to come into the garden. Adam's first fault was not that he listened to the serpent and ate from the fruit. His first fault was that he let the serpent into the garden. This should have stayed in the outer lands where it belonged. But he let it in. He did not keep or guard the temple. So what does all this mean for us? You guys know that Adam blew it? That garden is gone. That temple, demolished. What is the temple today? The New Testament makes it very clear. You and me, with Jesus as the head, we call this the church, is the present day temple. And God's mission for Adam to work and keep the temple and to expand its borders across the globe has not changed. That is what we're supposed to do as the temple of God ourselves. God has called you individually within the church to be a priest for the temple church. You're a priest to help cultivate it, to let it grow. You're a priest to guard it, to keep the wickedness out of it. That is our role. You are in the garden right now. You are Adam. And that's how we're supposed to define our context right now in God's story. We are in the new Eden. We are the new priests in the new temple. And we're trying to make its borders expand across the globe. Jesus put it like this. Matthew 28 verse 18. You guys know what this is called, right? The Great Commission. It's just like 128, Genesis 128. That was the first commission to Adam. Jesus recommissions the same thing to man, to the church. He says this to them. All authority in heaven, dominion, and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, or priests, of all nations, or to the ends of the earth. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching, or what? cultivating them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I am with you always to the end of the age what does that mean I'm with you always it means I am indwelling the church as a temple that's what a temple is God's presence dwelling man I'm with you always temple the church is a temple meant to expand to the outermost parts of the earth cultivating its growth discipling people in other words Acts 1 8 
Jesus said this as well. This is Luke's version of it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In other words, God's going to dwell in you. You're going to be a temple. And you will become my witnesses, or my priests, in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're to be his priests, expanding the church to the ends of the earth. And we're to do this the same two ways that Adam did it. We're to cultivate creation as a Christ-centered community. So, you guys need to start cultivating whatever it is God's given you. You need to start expanding your garden where you are. Start, get the shovel, get the seed, whatever. I don't know you'd use in the garden. Just, just get it, pick it up, whatever God's giving you, your gift, and do your task. Do your part and expand your part of the border. Every man at the edge of the border, we're expanding the temple. So take that gift and cultivate it. Stop just sitting on your hands and, oh, I'm so bored. I just want something to do. That's why so many kids are getting involved in raves today. They are being subdued by creation when they're supposed to be doing the opposite cultivating the church to expand and then second we're just like Adam supposed to protect this temple and it starts with you individually as well just like the cultivating starts with you individually it starts with you keeping wickedness out of your life guarding those borders and saying this is where God dwells nothing comes in and messes with that you know what bugs me more than anything Oh, no, I shouldn't say more than anything. It's like getting all extreme here. Uh, what bugs me a lot, though, is one of my pet peeves, maybe greater than a pet peeve. You hear this all the time. I'm sure you guys have heard this, too. It's when people say things like, don't do that here. We're at church. Or don't say that here. This is a holy place. Okay, you know what that shows? They have absolutely no concept that they are the temple of God. Because if we, the church, are the temple, where can you go to do that? Where can you go to say that? It's not just here, up in the game room on Sunday night. When you're at school amongst unbelievers, you're there to promote the temple in the midst of that chaotic wilderness to bring life. It's not like, oh, cool, I'm out of the temple now. I can cuss and swear and look at anything I want and act however I want. You don't just leave the temple. You are the stones of the temple, the New Testament says. We're just be expanding. And by doing that, by bringing people into it and, and expanding because there's more, the more priests you have, the bigger the temple is. So we go and cultivate people and relationships so that they become priests. And then the temple has been expanded by yet another step. You see? So this helps everything for me. It helps evangelism. I don't have to take those classes that how to share Jesus with somebody. You don't, we're missing the first step. Cultivate Christ-centered community in every relationship you have. That's what my dad does at work. In fact, that was his very words. He says, I'm at my job to cultivate a new culture. And when he says, whoa, I'm quoting you. He sees his job as a temple. There's people there that he needs to cultivate and God's presence expands as they're included in the temple. Um, Bree's dad, Oscar, he runs that kitchen like a literal temple. He's never said this language, but this is exactly how I hear it. 
He is mad about those borders. You bring uncleanliness into that kitchen. Oscar knows it, and he lets you know it. He drives you out. He had a very severe talk with me once, not because I did it, but about other people who bring like their unwashed hands in there. And he was like, "This is like he's like this is a kitchen. This is a clean place. You don't bring that in." And I, as I watched him talking, like you're like a priest guarding a temple, man. They're like, "This is great," and he's cultivating a Christ community in that kitchen. There's no, there's no purposeless people. Everyone has a goal and it's to make the guests blessed by the Lord and by the food. And everybody's part of that or you're just a hindrance to him. He runs it like a literal temple. And so that's how we can start to incorporate this into our lives. Start cultivating relationships. Start cultivating your gifts. Expand the temple. We are the priests. We are collectively the temple and it's to grow to the ends of the earth. And it's not through shooting people up and saying we're now a Christian nation because all the infidels are gone. It's by cultivating them into the temple, growing it. So, what Adam failed, God has entrusted through Jesus to his church. And this is our role in God's story. Father, we ask that you would give us grace to do this task. These things are so hard for us. But Lord, I pray that you would teach these students to cultivate their gardens and their areas, the borders that they stand at. Show them how to grow that garden. Show them how to expand the temple. And Father, as we do this, keep us pure. And may we severely guard our borders that nothing unclean brings death into your temple. So make us holy, make us pure. Use us to expand your temple. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.